Well, good morning. It's really a privilege and an honor to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, Pastor is over at Lighthouse today for, for Jojo Reisinger's ordination service. Um, I've spoken over at Lighthouse a couple times, and just a funny memory from, from that was um, I got there, and one of the members said, so you're the wood putty today. I said, wood putty? What are you talking about? Yeah, you're, you're here to fill the pulpit. Like, oh, okay, so I'm just some filling compound to, to fill the pulpit up here this morning. Okay, so, you know, I may not be worth more than wood putty this morning, but I have something here that's more precious than gold. And we're going to look at that this morning. And, um, we're going to look at some things that God has used in, in my life, and I pray that he will, he will use in, in your life as he has in my own. So take your Bibles and, and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, we're going to be looking at the first four verses this morning. You know, when God created us, he did so with the intent of being able to fellowship with every one of us in a, in a loving and a close relationship. This was the experience of Adam and Eve when they were created. In Genesis 3, as the account of, of Adam and Eve's disobedience began to unfold, we're told that God showed up for a visit. Judging by Adam's response, it was, it was evident that, that God's um, frequent visits to them were, were normal things. Um, but there was something different about this visit. Something had radically changed between God and, and Adam and Eve, and, and they all knew it. Adam had made the choice to disobey God, and by doing so had broken that relationship with him. They had removed God from the throne of their hearts. We can only imagine the heartbreak that God had it, would have had at that time. But when that happened, God made it clear that though this relationship had been broken, he was going to do whatever possible, whatever would be needed to restore that relationship. He declared in Genesis 3.15 that there was one coming, the seed of a woman, who would crush the devil's plan to dominate over his creation. His plan was to take the brokenness of man's relationship and restore it, to make it new again man's relationship with God. And at that time, God began revealing his plan to restore man to himself. So we see throughout scriptures God's plan of redemption unfolding. That plan was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And when, when Jesus came, he accomplished everything needed on God's end to atone for our sin and to restore us back to himself. Through Jesus, we have full access to walk and talk with our Heavenly Father in a way that was never before possible. But just like any relationship, we have a responsibility. We have the responsibility to pursue this relationship. And the only way for our relationship to grow is if we take an active role in seeking God. We've got this problem, and it's called sin. We still have indwelling sin. We still have this thing called the flesh that often makes us not feel like seeking after God. We grow so uncomfortable with, so comfortable with where we're at in life that the pursuit of this relationship with God just often doesn't seem necessary. You know, every one of us has a sense of our need for something more, something to satisfy a deep longing in our soul. But the problem is, not everyone knows that God is the only one that can fill that need. The world doesn't know any better because they don't know God, but if you're here today as a child of God, 
and you are seeking something other than a close walk with God to fill this void, you'll find that it will only leave you empty. Joy and satisfaction in this life can only be found in an active, a living, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And you will only grow closer in that relationship by seeking God. Psalm 107 verse 9 says that he, that is God, satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. Can I ask you this morning, what do you do with the longing in your soul? What are you seeking after? Follow along as I read in Colossians chapter 3. He says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. I'd like to look this morning at how our relationship with Jesus makes it possible to seek God. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for the incredible privilege of having a relationship. Father, would you open the eyes of our understanding to see that you are the only one that can meet this need. You are the only one that can fill the longing in our souls. And oh Lord, what a privilege to find in you all we need. Lord, would you guide my lips this morning that I would speak clearly and speak the words that you'd have me to speak. Guide our hearts, Lord, that we would be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry. In our text this morning, we find an exhortation to seek and to set our affections on things above. You know, I found it interesting the way that these commands are presented. Paul didn't say, seek and set your affections on things above because you owe your all to Jesus for what he went through for you. No, the commands here are not presented based on a debt that we owe to Christ for his death for us. We are forever indebted to him, but as the old song goes, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. There's no reimbursements for salvation. Jesus paid it all. The command to seek and set our affections above, though, is an appeal here, not for a debt, but it's an appeal to the believers to live in the reality of who God has made us to be in Christ. So I want to look briefly here at the, the reasons that Paul gives for these commands. The first command and, and the reason he gives it, um, starting in verse 1, he says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. You know, the word if could rightly be changed to since, because really it's a, it's a statement of fact for those who have received Christ for salvation. Romans 6 deals with this truth at length. But the fact is, if you have trusted Jesus to save you, the fact is, the Bible says that you are in Christ. You are one with Christ, and therefore you have been identified with Christ and all that he has been through in his death, in his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. 
So he's saying here, since you are risen with Christ, based on that fact, seek those things which are above. And the second command and, and the reason for it, look at verses 2 and 3. It says, set your affections on things above. And at verse 3, for ye are dead. That's the reason. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. What is he talking about here? What does it mean that we are dead and that our life is hid with Christ? You know, I submit to you this morning that trusting God with the fact that you are in Christ, that Christ is in you, and the fact that Christ is your life is a reality that when gotten a hold of will change your life. Jesus didn't just come to, to pay for our sin and then say, see when you get to heaven, I hope it goes well with you. Not at all. Jesus died for our sins to clear the way for the Spirit of God to, to live in us. For God to inhabit man and walk in fellowship with him the way he intended and planned it to be from the beginning. You know, I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. I, I don't understand what all this means and how it all works. How the Spirit of God could make me one with Jesus is a mystery that I don't know that I'll ever fully comprehend. But just because I don't know how it all works out doesn't make it any less true. God has the details figured out, and though there's so much more for me to learn in this area, I found that simply trusting him with, with, the, with the truth, with the, the application and practical outworking of this fact is what makes the difference in my life. So I'd like to begin this morning by exploring some of what it means to be in Christ and that Christ is our life. It's not going to be exhaustive, but just focused on, on what's presented here. After that, we'll address the, the matter of seeking and setting our affections on things above. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In Colossians 3 there, I want you to notice three truths that Paul declares are realities of who we are in Christ and what it is about us that has become new. Starting in verse 3 there, the first, first couple of words, ye are dead. Then look at verse 1, you are risen with Christ. And then in verse 4, Christ who is our life. So starting in verse 3, for ye are dead. Death, we really need to define that. Death, is, death means a separation. We think of death most often in a physical sense, which, which is when our body is, is separated from our soul. But now Paul is writing this letter to the Colossian believers, and, and by extension he's writing to all of us, and he says, ye are dead. Now last I checked, Postal Service doesn't make deliveries to the cemeteries. You ever notice that? Now, I did get curious and had to check, and cemeteries do have street addresses, but they don't have any mailboxes, if, if you haven't noticed. So, dead people cannot receive letters. So Paul is not writing to people who are physically dead. So what is he saying here? Ye are dead. He's saying that you're separated from, you're cut off from something. Look at verse 3. For ye are dead. And in contrast to the deadness, there is an aliveness. He says here, and your life is hid with Christ in God. I want to do a sword drill with you this morning. So take your Bibles and, and hold them up as we do a sword drill. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Say that with me. Romans 6, 11. Charge. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto, what does it say there? Sin. So what are we dead to? Sin, okay? So according to this verse, we are dead to sin. Now wait a minute. Now I'm speaking from your perspective. Wait a minute, you say, I don't feel dead to sin. What is it talking about here? That's not my experience. Well, welcome to the party. Thanks for being honest. Admitting you have a problem is the first step to recovery. Let's address the first problem. You can't trust your feelings. So now let's get back to the lesson, because not experiencing victory over sin is the very reason God has given us this truth. So we're dead to sin, but, but in what way are we dead to sin? It's obvious that we are not perfect. So how are we dead to sin? What does that mean? Back in Colossians 3, he says, for ye are dead. The point he's making here is at salvation, there's been a change in your identity. There's been a change in your relationship both to sin and with God. We're going to look at Romans 6 more in a little bit, but for now understand this. Before salvation, you were alive. You were joined to, or you were united with sin, and you were dead. You were separated from God in trespasses and sins. But when you receive Jesus as your Savior, that all changed. Your relationship to sin is now dead. You're separated from that. The relationship is broken. In other words, your bondage to sin, to serving sin, has been broken. And now your relationship with God is alive. You are joined to God. This relationship is established. You are his servant, no longer the servant of sin. Romans 6.22 puts it this way, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Think of it like a marriage relationship. The only way in the eyes of God that a marriage relationship ends is by the death of one of the spouses. Romans 7 speaks to this and uses this analogy in this way. For us to be rightly related to God, our old relationship or union with sin had to die. Both in Colossians 3 and Romans 6, we find the terms old man and new man. Your old man is referring to when you were once identified with indwelling sin as your master, as your partner. You were, as it were, married to sin. In a, in a relationship that was unbreakable. There was nothing that you could do to be separated from that relationship. So in order for you, for you to be separated from sin, one of those partners in that relationship had to die. Well, it's obviously that sin, sin didn't die, but that just leaves one option. Romans 6, verse 6 through 7 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve 
sin. For he that is dead or he who has died is freed from sin. The fact is, the moment we trusted Christ for salvation, we were identified with and brought into union with Christ in his death, his resurrection. And that killed our relationship to sin. After that, we were raised with him a new man and are now married to Christ. He is now our divine partner. You are now in a new relationship that is unbreakable. For ye are dead. That's why we see verses like Romans 6.6 6 and Galatians 2.20 which say, I am crucified with Christ. Again, this has nothing to do with whether or not you feel dead to sin. It has everything to do with the fact that you are separated from bondage to indwelling sin. I'll never forget the way one evangelist put it. He said, sin is not your boss anymore. Man, hallelujah. This union with sin is forever broken, never to be reunited. Listen, it doesn't matter how stuck you feel to that sinful habit. It doesn't matter how painful or deep your past failures have been. Yes, there may be consequences for sin. If you lose a limb in a fight, you're not going to get it back. But the fact is, going forward, he that is dead is freed from sin. And brothers and sisters, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You know, we're going to address this a little bit more, but first let's cover the next two aspects of our identity with Christ. Verse 1, it says, ye are risen with Christ. Ephesians 2, 6 says that God raised us up in Christ. You know, this is something that took place at salvation. We were identified in Christ's death and now have been raised to a new life as a new man with a new relationship. This new man is the part of us that is the new creation that 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about, where it says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. This change in our relationship is from a sinful man to a Christ-indwelt man. From a man married to sin to a man married to Christ, that's what makes us all new. With our old man of indwelling sin no longer alive, the Holy Spirit moves in and becomes our new master. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Now I want to be clear at this point that sin has not been completely taken away from who we are. Nowhere in Scripture does God tell us that we could be sinless this side of heaven. God does not expect perfect perfection from us. In fact, 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In the context of verse 8, that gives us the remedy for, for when we do sin, and that is to confess our sins. And he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, that's the restoration of fellowship when we do sin. So sinless perfection, this side of heaven, is a false hope. But the provision for victory over sin is a present reality. As we'll see later, the whole reason we're told to yield ourselves to God and to, to mortify or put to death the works of our flesh, as we see later in um, Colossians and even verse 5, um, is because indwelling sin is still present with us. But the difference, folks, is that before salvation, we were powerless to win against our sin problem. But since we've been saved, 
we have in our relationship with Jesus to say all we need to say no to sin and yes to God. All that's left for us is to access that provision by faith. So your dad, your old man is separated from bondage to indwelling sin. You're risen with Christ. You have a new relationship. And then look at verse 4. Christ, who is our life. Galatians 2.20 puts it this way. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Christ is our life. The Christian life isn't patterning our lives after Jesus. The Christian life is letting the life of Christ live through us. It's true that when we trust Jesus to live through us, that our lives will look more like Christ. But the idea that we can live pleasing to God if we simply study the pattern of Jesus and and seek to to emulate his good deeds, deeds completely misses the point. That's a human effort to live up to the righteous standard of God, which, which only Jesus can meet. The question is not, how can I better live for Christ? Because the answer to that is, you can't. The right question is, how can I let Christ live more freely through me? Right now, we have no more ability in and of ourselves to live like Jesus than the Old Testament Jew had to follow the law. The difference, then, is that the Christian life is trusting Jesus to live through us. We don't have what it takes to live godly, but the good news is Jesus in us does. And he has the ability in us to make the right choice every time. And if we yield to him in every moment, he will live righteously through us. So I'd like to talk a moment about yielding the will. So turn back over to Romans 6. Romans 6 really helps to bring out the application of of what we've been talking about into into three simple words. Know, reckon, and yield. We won't spend a lot of time here, but the three simple things we need to see here are, number one, know the right facts. There's two things we need to know. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Romans 6. He says, knowing this... That our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. So know two things. Number one, know that you have been separated from indwelling sin as your master. That old relationship has died in the sense that you are under no obligation to continue fellowshipping with sin. Now look at verse 8. Now, if we be dead with Christ, that is dead to sin, as we saw in verses 6 and 7, we believe that we shall also live with him. So know that you are dead, you've been separated from sin as your master. Second, know that you are alive in Christ, alive to God who is your new master. Your new relationship with Jesus comes with the full privileges of fellowship with one who loves you and cares about you and has nothing other than your good in mind. What a privilege. So first, know the right facts. Second, reckon these facts to be true. Verses 9 and 10 state that that Christ died for our sin once, never again to be separated from God. He is now alive to God forever. And verse 11 follows that up with, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
The word reckon here means to accurately account for the facts. It's to understand and agree that what God says is true. It's like this. Suppose that someone were to write me a check for $1 million. And if you want to help illustrate this, uh, we can arrange that, but I don't, want, I don't know what I'd do with $1 million. <laughs> so say I took that $1 million and I promptly went and deposited it in my bank account. Now say that I went, went home to my financial records and I, and I wrote down that I had just deposited $100. Now tell me, would that be accurately accounting for the facts? And the answer is no. No, that wouldn't be accurately accounting for the facts. The reality is I have $1 million in the bank. What I write down doesn't change the facts. It just doesn't accurately account for them. The fact is, brothers and sisters, that you are in Jesus, and Jesus is in you, and that means that all you need to live godly in Christ Jesus is always with you in the spirit of Christ Jesus. Even on your worst days when you felt that there was no other option but to yield to that temptation or to give in to dwelling on that right thought, that wrong thought, Jesus was right there and he will be with you next time as well. Reckon it to be so. Satan doesn't want us to accurately account for these facts. Our old master doesn't want us to know these facts. Our flesh often doesn't like to deal with these facts either. But who God has made you to be in Christ and dwelt by the life of Christ wants God's way every time. And by God's grace, you can so first, know the right facts. Know that you've been dead and you're freed from sin. Reckon these, this deadness to sin and that you are alive to God. And the third truth, yield yourself to God. You see, our choice determines our experience. Look at verse 12 of Romans 6. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You see, it's a choice of the will. It's a choice to trust God that his way is best and let Jesus live through, right through you. And it's a choice that's made by faith. In the last half of Galatians 2.20, I'll read the whole verse again. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live by and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Know the right facts, reckon them to be true, and yield yourselves unto God, trusting that he is able. We've looked at the, the incredible shift of, of who we were to who we now are because of this relationship with Jesus. We went from being a slave to sin to being freed by Christ. From alienated to the life of God by our sin to being indwelt by the life of God by our new relationship with him. Why is it so important that we understand these things? Here's why. Because if you don't know the right facts, you'll have the wrong focus. If you think the battle over sin in your life is won by trying harder, your focus is in the wrong place and you will be painfully defeated. The focus is not in trying harder, but in trusting more. The focus for victory is not in the flesh, which profits nothing, but on Jesus, 
who is more than able to do abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to his power that works in us. Back to Colossians 3. You're dead to indwelling sin as your master. You're raised a new man in a new relationship with Christ. And right now, Christ is your life living in you. I'll never forget the day when, when the reality of Christ's life for victory over the flesh began to dawn in my heart. There were habits in my life that I knew were wrong, but try as I might, I could find no lasting victory. There were times of victory and even some prolonged periods of victory, but oh, how I longed for this stronghold to be removed in my life once and for all. I knew in my mind that victory was possible in Jesus and, and that he was somehow living in me to help me. But how that made a difference in my experience, I didn't understand. And it was, I was supposed to trust him, but how? What did this look like? In desperation, as I cried out to the Lord for an understanding of, of how I could find lasting victory in this area, he led me to an understanding of the truths that we've been talking about today. I began to understand that the practical outworking of my relationship with Jesus came down to trusting him. I know it's so simple. But trusting him, not just trusting him moment by moment, so that in that moment of temptation, I can yield myself to let his righteousness live through me. He showed me that it came down to trusting him, not just once for the whole week, not just once for the day, not just once for the hour, but moment by moment. Came down to trusting him, not just in this moment, but in the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment, and every moment thereafter. This may be nothing new to you, but it's true. You know what he showed me? That he is sufficient to deal with this problem, and that worry, and that frustration, and that irritation, and that temptation, and that fear, that uncertainty and that hurt and that duty and that task. I found that in that moment, in any moment of time, I can call upon him to love through me when I cannot love, to have his pureness of mind to replace each temptation to impurity, to have his humility to replace my pride, to have his servant's heart to replace my selfishness, to have his peace to replace my fear. All these and so much more become realities in my life as I simply yield to him in that moment of need and let him live righteously through me. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to testify this morning that this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. And he is continuing to do so and he will continue to do so as I continue to trust him and he'll do the same for you. I want to invite you, as the psalmist did in Psalm 34, 8, a couple verses later, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. You know, the victory I found in Jesus that day marked, a, marked the beginning of a whole new outlook on life. But it was only found on my knees, seeking the Lord. And the more I've seen him give victory in the areas, both great and small, the more I've seen how capable he is with all of my problems. As the songwriter said, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." And he continues, "'How I've proved him. 
over and over. You know, I hope this morning that this testimony can encourage you, but it will never be enough to convince you of the reality of what your life can be unless you find it in yourself that he is all you need for every moment. You have to experience him for yourself. Today, if you're a child of God and you're struggling with sin, just acknowledge your inability to live righteously and start trusting Jesus to live righteously through you. When he tells you to go make something right, do it. When he tells you to get that habit or object out of your life, don't delay. When he tells you to go speak to that individual, obey. And when you trust him, you'll find that with Christ in you, you have everything you need to do what is right. Won't you begin seeking him with all your heart today? Back over in Colossians 3, Paul is saying here, since you are dead to sin, since you are risen with Christ, since Christ is in you and you are in Christ, seek those things which are above. In other words, he's saying, live in the reality of who Christ is in you and who you are in Christ. Your new man wants to seek that which is above. Your new man wants and needs that closeness with God, and, your, and the good news is your union with Christ makes that seeking possible. Jeremiah 29, 13, God gives a promise to the heart that seeks after him. He says, and ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. You can bank on that. So let's look at the command to seek. First, what are we to seek? It says in verse 1, seek those things which are above. The word seek means to search for until found. The kind of seeking we're told to do here is, is the seeking like the woman in Jesus' parable who lost a coin. That coin was something of incredible value to her, and she could not move on in life without it. She went to a great extremes to find it. She set everything else aside and made that her number one priority. She even swept her house clean so she could find it. You ever wonder how, um, when someone wants to find something so bad, wondering how, how they'll... Want to know how, someone, how badly someone wants to find something? Just see, how, see if they're willing to clean up to find it. I don't know how many times I've just had to throw my hands up and just clean stuff up, and then, and then it shows up. So seeking takes time and dedication. Seeking doesn't happen without intention. So what are those things that we're supposed to seek? We're told here to seek those things which are above. And we're told that it is where Christ sits at the right hand of God, which is referring to heaven. So he's saying here, seek those things which are in heaven. What could that mean? Jesus, when, when modeling um, how to pray, asked of the Father, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus was asking God the Father that he would make what goes on in heaven above, which is always according to the will of God that that would take place on earth. Basically, Father, we want what you like and what you do up there. We want that down here on earth. In short, Paul is saying here, seek the will of God. Seek after what is most important to God and let that be your first goal in life. You know, I do believe that God gives specific direction to each of his children through his word as, as we seek him for it. 
But there is at least one thing that God wills that each of us seek after, and that is himself. God's will is that we seek a close walk with him. God's will is that we seek his face. First Chronicles 16.11 says, Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Not when we feel like it, but continually on a moment-by-moment basis. All God wants of us is our hearts. He has done everything on his end to make this relationship possible. And if you've received him as your Savior, that relationship has begun. But has your relationship with your Heavenly Father grown? My relationship with him has not always been what it ought to be. I still struggle at times seeking the face of God. But the more I see him and experience the reality of a close walk with him, the more longing I have to go back to him in those times when I fail to seek him. I've wasted years of my life out of fellowship with my Savior, and I urge you, don't let it be the same for you. Seek his face. You won't regret it. You know, all of us at one time or another have experienced times apart from loved ones. And no doubt, we've looked forward to when we're able to be in their presence again. We can exchange letters with them or or talk with them on the phone or even a video call these days. Those things are nice, but I guarantee you nothing beats being face-to-face with them. All the ways that we can communicate only temporarily meet our need and longing to be in the presence of our loved ones, but it can never replace it. And our need for God is the same way. That's why he says, seek my face continually. You know, there's a very real sense in which you and I can know and experience the presence of our loving Heavenly Father right here on earth. Listen, talking to God doesn't have to be like a long-distance phone call. It can be, in a a spiritual sense, a face-to-face meeting with God. Do you know the presence of God in your life? You know, throughout the Bible, we we find the heart cries of individuals who knew their need for this closeness, closeness with God. It was not just that they needed deliverance from a trial or to keep them safe and and happy, because but, but it was because they knew that there was something more to this life than what the world had to offer. They knew that there was a need in their soul to find the manifest presence that only the manifest presence of God could fill. Jesus said in, in John 14, 21, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. God is always present with the believer, but what he's saying here is there's a special way in God, that God will show up in the life of a believer who makes their first priority that of seeking God in faith, and who in love for him trust and obey his words. The heart cries of those individuals um, in Scripture who knew their need for this closeness with God. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, David says, As the heart pants after the water brooks, so my soul panteth for thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. 
My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. My soul followeth hard after thee. In Psalm 84, 2, my soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Listen, seeking God begins with a thirst. It's a longing to fill the need of our souls to fellowship with him. In a physical realm, we can't go very long before being consumed with our need for water. But isn't it amazing that we can go for so long without meeting with God and not being consumed with that need to seek after him? God is the living water of our spiritual life. Are you thirsty for God? Does your soul hunger for the reality of his presence, or are you letting the things of this earth dull your thirst for God? So first, what to seek? We seek those things which are above. We seek the will of God, the face of God. And second, how to seek. Look at verse 2 of, of Colossians 3. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Listen, our, our own affections or desires should never be a leading factor in our life unless they are God's desires for us. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of your heart. And the fact is, it's when you delight in him, he changes the desires of your heart to be what he desires. And if you follow, because listen, if you follow the roller coaster of your own desires and feelings, you will end up with a roller coaster experience in your life. And I mean that in a bad way. Some people may like roller coasters. But, but when you submit your affections and desires to the command of your will, under the command of Jesus in you, your experience will go from the turbulence of life around you to, the, to that of resting in the peace of Jesus within you. It doesn't change the turbulence around you, but it just changes your experience through that turbulence. Notice the command here, set your affections. In other words, exercise your will over your affections and desires to choose the desire of that which is heavenly over that which is earthly. Yield yourself to God as we saw in Romans 6. Another way we could say this is, is choose your treasures and make that be on the will of God, not on that which is on the earth. Do you long after the presence of God in your life? Do you want your desires set on that which is heavenly? Just have five simple points, thoughts on that in closing. It starts with believing. Jesus said in John 7, 37, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. It starts with believing. Believe that he alone can satisfy the need of our souls. Psalm 107.9 says, he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. You can rest on that promise. Also, believe that a diligent seeking will result in finding God. Hebrews 11.6 says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently 
seek him. And what God says is, he means is. He is the rewarder, and you can take that to the bank. Notice that it's by faith, by depending upon him for everything. Listen, we don't have the diligence that we need to seek God as much as we need him. But when we trust Christ who lives in us, we will find all the enablement we need to diligently seek him. Second point, examine yourself. Where are my affections? Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How much do you value your relationship with God? Is there a habit or a hobby or pursuit that is not evil in itself, but is taking the place of time spent seeking after God? How much does your soul thirst after God, and are you letting the things of this world dull that thirst? You want a true test of where your affections are at? Think of the greatest blessing you've received from the hand of God. Maybe it's a, your most cherished earthly relationship. If God were to take that away today, would you be okay with that? Would your relationship with God still thrive? Or does your affection for God hinge upon him maintaining those blessings? You know, Abraham was tested on this point when he, when he was told to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Apparently, Abraham had elevated the blessing of a son above his relationship with God. The test that God gave Abraham woke him up to the perils of resting his happiness in life on a blessing rather than on God himself. Where are your affections? Third point, take time to cultivate right affections. One way to see how much we value our relationship with God is by examining what we spend our time on. As I mentioned earlier, relationships don't grow by themselves. They take time. What are we spending our time on, and, and does it crowd out our time spent getting to know our God? Fourth point, make the choice to set your affections on things above. You know, you can choose to love that which is on the earth over that which is in heaven, but it'll leave you empty. We're not to fix our eyes on that which is seen, but on that which is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Instead of choosing to love the here and now, you can choose to stand on the fact that Christ is in me. Therefore, in his strength, I reject what my flesh longs after and embrace what my new man and the Spirit of God in me truly desires, a close walk with God. Fifth point, ask God for the desire to seek him. Make this the prayer of your heart. God, help me to see how much I need you and can't go on without you. Help me to stand on the fact of my union and with Christ and to seek you with a hungry heart. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, concluded chapter 2 with this prayer. Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding. I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that thou 
mayest enter there and dwell without a rival. In closing, I just want to challenge you as believers. Let the truth of who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you align what you seek after and what you desire with who you actually are. You are indwelt by the life of Christ. Are you seeking him to satisfy your every need? Are your affections aligned with his affections? You have all you need within you to live victoriously in the person of Jesus Christ, to seek the face of God, and to set your affections on things above. Are you taking the provision of Jesus for your moment-by-moment need? In Paul's cry of agony over indwelling sin, he said in Romans 7, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And followed up with this answer, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Nothing and no one less than Jesus can win the victory over sin in our lives. And nothing and no one less than Jesus can satisfy our deepest needs. But perhaps you're here today and you have not believed on Jesus to save you from your sin. The Bible says that you are separated from God. But it doesn't have to stay that way. The Bible shows us how we can be saved. It's very simple. You recognize that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died to pay the full price for your sin and then rose again. The death that Jesus died for our sins and the life that he now lives is God's gift to us. And that's God's gift to you. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If that's your need today, I'd love to show you more from the Bible or there's others here that could show you as well. I'd be happy to direct you to Let's close our time here in a word of prayer. Lord, you have blessed so much. You have given us so much in your son. Lord, help us to take today the fullness of the reality of who we are in Christ. Lord, guide us toward a closer walk with you. Lord, help us to seek you with our whole hearts. Thank you for your enablement to do just that. Lord, we commit ourselves to you and just ask that you would bless, that you would be glorified in the rest of the services today. We praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.